0: Good evening, everybody. Um, If you could turn with me to Ezra chapter 3, and um, it's on page 475 in the Pew Bibles, Ezra 3, and I'm just going to read this now as we start our service, our start of the sermon. It's entitled, the start of it is entitled in the NIV, Rebuilding the Altar. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. In accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, And the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundations of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. So that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Saras, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of the brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites twenty years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. And we pray that God would bless the reading of his word to us. It stood at the very center of the nation, symbolizing its greatness. It was a vast complex of buildings thronging every day with people going about their business. And it's destruction. It's complete destruction. It's annihilation. Cut to the very heart and soul of the nation as the massive complex was completely razed to the ground. September 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers in New York. And we all know something of the impact of those events on the United States and on its people. And I think as we think, because they're quite recent historically, about the effects of that event on the United States and on its people I think it gives us a little insight into the effects of what had begun in Jerusalem in 605 BC as we heard from the group last week with the overthrow and captivity of Jerusalem or Israel and then it culminated in Jerusalem being destroyed in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar just completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And not only was the temple completely destroyed, was Jerusalem razed to the ground, but large numbers of the population, the influential, the educated, the religious were all carried into captivity. And the very heart and the very soul of a religious nation who expressed its nationality and religion in the one and the same place in the temple It was destroyed as the temple tumbled down into a mass of burnt out ruins. And then as we heard last Sunday, in 538 BC, Cyrus, the Persian who had overthrown the Babylonians, gave permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their national and religious heritage. And if we had looked at chapters 1 and 2 of Ezra, they'd have told us something about that homecoming, and who came back from Babylon, who they were, the families, and how many people there were, and so on. And so we come to chapter 3 of Ezra, where we see the first wave of Jews returning. So let's look a bit at the structure of what Ezra 3 looks like. The first section, 1 to 7, verses 1 to 7, which we read, took place in 537 BC. Now, as you may know, there's, probably, there's debate about exact timings, but we're using an agreed chronology for our preaching workshop, and it's 537 BC that we're, we're sticking on as, as a date for this. They arrived in Jerusalem. The first thing they did was construct the altar, as we read in the passage. They then began worship using the altar. And then after that, they ordered building materials in exactly the same way as had been done previously. When the first temple was built, they ordered them through intermediaries in Sidon and Tyre to bring down the logs, the cedar logs from Lebanon, land them at Joppa, and then take them across land to Jerusalem for the construction of the temple. So that's the first seven verses. And then verses 8 to 13 of Ezra 3 took place in 536 B.C. And what happened there was that the work started on the temple. The foundations were laid of the temple and as soon as the foundations were laid there was this massive celebration where the people joined together to celebrate the, the beginning of the work of the temple. And they had this uh, where they sang the psalms, the psalms. The psalms! One of the psalms which we were reading tonight was probably one of the psalms which was sung and the celebration took place and there was this great shout of praise to the Lord and there was lots of noise and everybody in Jerusalem, whether they were sympathetic to what was going on or not, heard what was going on. So we take up this story as this contingent from Babylon. 42,000 odd people had arrived, settled in their different towns and then in the seventh month, They all arrived in Jerusalem. You may say, why the seventh month? Well, the seventh month was significant because it was probably the most important month in the Jewish calendar. first day of the month is New Year. The The tenth day of the month is the Day of Atonement, the day whenever the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. One time a year he was allowed to do that. And also, from the 15th to the 21st day was the Feast of Tabernacles, when they remembered their deliverance from Egypt. And it's also the month when Solomon called Israel for the dedication of the first temple. And you can read about that in 1 Kings. And if you read this chapter, you have to bear in mind that what's going on here is there are lots of references back to the first temple, to what happened in the first temple. The timings, the way in which things are done, and also the references to what is written or to what is written in the Law of Moses, show that things are being carried out in accordance with the law that they have been given, and also in accordance with the way in which the first temple was built, constructed, dedicated, set up, and so on. And why is all this? Well it is quite simple it is to show that what has been done here may be a second attempt, a second go, if you like it is a new building, it is a much lesser building, it is a second chance. But the form of worship is that of the first temple. In other words, it's continuity. It's the nation re-establishing itself in exactly in the way in which it, re- it expressed itself in the old temple, which was completely and utterly destroyed, and when the nation was taken off into the captivity. It's authentic, authentic Jewish worship, because it followed what Moses and David had prescribed. So let's have a wee look in this chapter of what had actually happened with the construction and with what was going on. And the first thing I want to do is look at the altar. As I said, the first seven verses are thereabouts Yes, the first seven verses talk about the altar. Verse three says that they built the altar on its foundation, on the original site. So they cleared the original site. Can you imagine it? cleared the debris off, did whatever was necessary, got the original spot where Solomon had uh, sacrificed thousands of animals at the dedication of the first temple. They cleared that all off. And no doubt this may have still been a sacred site. Who knows? It may have been used as a worship site by the people who had stayed in Jerusalem. And they cleared off this site. And they set up an altar in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses. Well, what did that mean? Well, it meant that they set up an altar made out of field stones. In other words, stones which were not cut out of a quarry or, or, or modified in any way. And it was a rough cast altar, but that was the way in which Moses had prescribed it. And then the sacrifices. The sacrifices were begun. This was the symbol of their consecration, their commitment to God. And also the display of the need for atonement, the covering of sin. I don't know if you can imagine it. These people, where the temple was integral to their worship, where sacrifice was integral to the expression of their religion, for 70 years had not sacrificed at all. They were in Babylon, modern day Iraq approximately, and they had not sacrificed any animals because they couldn't, because they didn't have an altar and they didn't have a temple. Can you imagine the significance of the very first sacrifice? And who, you know, the people who were involved in that. It was just awe-inspiring. It's a bit like, well, it's maybe not a good comparison, but if for some reason we weren't allowed to celebrate the Lord's Supper from 1937 until today, and tonight was the first time Windsor Baptist Church which had only been going five years, I think, in 1937, had celebrated the Lord's Supper for 70 years. Could you imagine the celebration and the feeling as the Lord's Supper was celebrated again? So it's a wee bit like that. 70 years, and the sacrifices started up again. And I don't know if you've ever seen an animal sacrifice. I haven't, I'm thankful to say. But I can just imagine. Can you imagine some of the noises, the smells, and all that would go on And what was important about the sacrifice? Well, the important thing about the sacrifice was that the animal which was being sacrificed was sacrificed completely. The animal was totally given over to God in the sacrifice. He was killed. His blood was spilt. There was no going back, if you like. The animal was sacrificed completely. And I think one of the things that, as I read this, I was struck by it, I was thinking, well, the sacrificial system is no longer. For instance, what we were doing earlier on tonight was a statement of the fact that no more sacrifice is needed. Jesus died once for all. And even in the Old Testament, there was the emphasis that to obey is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice was essential, but obedience was even better than sacrifice. So what can sacrifices the altar being reconstituted, say to us, 2,500 years later. And if you go into Romans in the New Testament, and if you go to Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament, you can see very clearly what has happened, what has happened with the whole concept of sacrifice. As Jesus came, Jesus went back to heaven And the disciples started preaching. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So, if you like, we can replace the um, sacrifice in the Old Testament with the Christian concept of consecration. Just as the sacrifice was given totally over to God when it was killed on the altar, so we give ourselves totally over to God. And it wasn't just a partial or a part sacrifice. Every last bit of the animal was sacrificed. Even in some of the sacrifices, the animal, the meat, was taken off the sacrifice and used for the priests to eat. And Paul talks here. About our bodies, in other words, our whole selves being living sacrifices, complete sacrifices, head, feet, hands, all of us are sacrifices. We're living sacrifices to God. And I don't know about you, but I find that a wee bit hard at times. You know, I want to talk about it, I even sing about it, you know, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. I think about it, contemplate it wonder what it might be like, but whenever the hard decisions come, it's difficult. I have a tendency to draw back and say, well, I don't really want to put all of myself completely on the altar of God's sacrifice. But as that's what we're called to do if we're Christians, we're called to offer ourselves completely. And Paul says here, he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. I think one of the other versions says it describes it as a reasonable thing. In other words, it's natural for us as believers to do. So the altar signifies total consecration, total sacrifice. Is that us? Does that speak of how we live our Christian lives? Do we sacrifice, as it were, at the living altar? And sacrifice our bodies each day to God. It's interesting to note as well. That the sacrifices were carried out. If you look at verse 3. It says. Um, were carried out. Despite their fear of the people. In verse 3 it says. Despite their fear of the peoples around them. They built the altar and its foundations. And sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning the morning and the evening sacrifices. You know, it wasn't an easy thing for these folks to dislodge the people who were there, to clear them out, even with imperial sanction. Build the altar and start up, you know, a form of sacrifice which had been defunct for 70 years. They did it despite the opposition from the people around them. And, you know, I think that speaks volumes to us you know, we sacrifice despite. Christian living and consecration is and can be difficult. And what we do, we don't necessarily do because the climate is favourable to us, but despite what the situation is. And I would say, if we don't sacrifice despite, we may never will. Think of these folks, if they would waited for a change of heart you know, from the folks around them. If they waited till the opposition calmed down before they started building the altar, before they started the sacrifices, they may have been waiting to this day. And if we are continually waiting for the appropriate set of circumstances to change, which means that it's easier for us to act, for us to be living sacrifices, for us to follow Jesus, then those circumstances may never arrive. The things that we visualize, I'll do that when that happens. I'll do it when things arrive like this. may never come. The call to the people was to sacrifice despite their fears. And similarly, we must act despite our fears. Despite our circumstances. Despite our uncertainties. Some decisions just have to be made. Some actions demand to be taken. Despite the circumstances. They just can't wait. There may be decisions that affect you as a believer. Perhaps to do with your lifestyle. Things that have to be stopped. Perhaps things that have to happen in your family. Perhaps things that have to happen in a relationship. Perhaps things that have to happen financially. Whatever. Or perhaps you're someone who isn't a believer tonight. And you know the story of Jesus. You've heard it here or in other places. And you know your own life. And you know your own need of Jesus. But you're waiting for less fearful circumstances. For things to change in some way. For things to get a wee bit easier. Or a wee bit clearer. Or something to change. But I would say to you, those situations may never arrive. And you have to take that decision, take that step of commitment and following Jesus, despite the circumstances and the situation that perhaps causes you fear. We need to act despite our fears. The altar was the people's first priority. The first thing they constructed, and they had the sacrificial system started again. Their consecration to God was first before they did anything else? And can, can, can the same be said of us, that our consecration to God is first in our lives? The second part of the chapter is about the temple foundations. And following again the pattern of the first temple, the building materials, as, as we said, have been ordered from Lebanon. Lebanon. And just the same way in which Solomon began building in the second month, so they began building in the second month. They were trying to show that what they were doing was totally consistent with what Solomon had done. Although it was a very practical reason. April, May was the beginning of the dry season. And in a country like Palestine, where you didn't have the mechanized tools that we have today, dry weather was much easier for building, as it is here or any else, anywhere else in the world and so the foundations are led in first 10 having laid the foundations I suppose if it was us we would say okay foundations led let's get on with it get the temple up get the windows in whatever else needs to be done quickly you know we're in a situation where people are pressing in on us they're not very supportive let's get on with the work we're in hostile territory but no, what did they do? They took time out to praise the Lord as it says in verses 10 and 11. And that again is exactly in line with what Solomon did. If you look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The dedication, singing the same great psalms, singing the refrain as we did earlier. We said it, we didn't sing it. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. Worship for them, was first. And if worship was first, God was at the center of what was going on. And I was thinking about that, and I hope you'll forgive my application. I hope it's not way off. You'll forgive me. But thinking about building projects. Building projects, or projects of any kind, have the ability to take on a life of their own. You know, they become all-consuming, become totally focused on the bricks, the mortar, getting the thing finished, getting it done, and somehow they can become detached from the original motivation, the reason, and the the why and the wherefore for doing the thing in the first place. And these folks were concerned that at all stages God should be praised, and very importantly, most importantly, at the foundation laying stage. Keeping worship first is a priority. And it's a marvellous way of keeping God in the centre of what's going on. And the Jews, if we follow the story through, don't want to steal anybody else's thunder, they eventually got diverted. And they had to be recalled back to the task of building the temple. And you know, we perhaps, possibly, might be embarking on a significant building project as a church fellowship in some time in the future and I think it will be important for us and a challenge for us to keep focused on the important issues whenever we're engaged in what is a large and what could be, because it's not agreed yet what could be a large extensive, financially intensive project we have to keep the questions in the front of our mind why do we meet as a church what are our priorities why are we doing all this we must keep God first and if we keep God first keep our worship and our devotion to him at the center then the project the other things that we're doing I think will fit more neatly and correctly into their place but as you read chapter 3 with me I don't know if you noticed those very two intriguing verses, verses 12 and 13. It says, But when many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being led, while many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise because and the sound was heard far away I think those are an intriguing couple of verses you've got this I don't know what it is why you describe it this noise of people weeping and at the same time people shouting uh, screaming perhaps for joy excitement and mourning both at the same time I was wondering about this and I'm wondering about the reasons for this I don't know if you've been following a little bit on the news, the emotion which has been surrounding the rebuilding of the World Trade Center or the site at the World Trade Center, the the 9-11 destruction in 2001 whenever the, the two towers were destroyed. There has been long drawn out processes about what should be built, what should the architecture look like, what should the memorial sites look like? How should they remember the people who were killed? And how does all this fit in to the, the, the country and to the nation, the United States? What are, what's, what's an appropriate memorial, people were saying? What's the type of memorial? What type of building should there be? And the emotion surrounded with that, especially for those people who are directly affected by what happened that day, is immense. You know, people who lost family members or people who survived who were in the Twin Towers or in the area and who survived that day. The emotion involved with the rebuilding of of that site seems as big as the emotion involved with its destruction. And I think that's something of what's going on here. What you have is a group of people who saw the temple They didn't just see its greatness and its splendor. They saw its destruction. They were there, perhaps, when the walls fell down. Maybe some of them were burnt in the fires that followed. Maybe some of them saw their families slaughtered in the temple precincts. They saw Jerusalem raised to the ground. They were there. They saw it. The great bronze implements that were used in the sacrifices, they heard the noise of those falling down and tumbling into the courtyard and then the Babylonians coming and taking them away they heard all this they experienced all this the smells, the sound, the burning and all the rest and now it's been rebuilt at least the foundations are being laid and emotion just waves over them all they can feel is the sense of what had happened when the temple had been destroyed and they would waited 70 years for this, hoping Maybe they'd given up hope. And they'd learnt a form of Judaism where the temple didn't exist. The temple wasn't used. And now it was all starting up again. God had been faithful in the midst of all those circumstances. And it's interesting, some commentators contrast the older people with the younger people in this passage and say it's the older ones, they saw the temple, they were weeping, the new ones or the younger ones, they'd never seen the temple. They were shouting for joy. But if you read the passage, it says that some of the Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. by many others, shouted for joy. It doesn't make any distinction between older or younger people. It implies it's the same group of people. Some of them had the emotion of absolute mourning and crying others were elated with joy when they saw the foundation being laid and they saw the project going forward again and what does that say to us well in spite of what had happened for 50 sorry for 70 years god was faithful and god said that he would bring them back again god said that he would restore the temple and restore the nation. And that's what's happening. I wonder about us. Are we inclined to give up with the circumstances of life? You know, there's a multitude of uncertainties in life. There are disappointments all around us. You know, disappointment crashes and clatters at us, a bit like the temple falling down. And things that have seemed immovable, perhaps, in our lives, certain people, certain institutions... You know, all of a sudden have collapsed for whatever reason, things fail us, and we enter into a phase when it seems that all we have are God's promises that He is faithful. And I wonder, if it hadn't been us, I'm just thinking, 1937, promise made to you well, I guess most of us, all of us perhaps wouldn't have been around 1937, or to our family, to your parents, to your grandparents. Which of us would still be fervently believing today in 2007, yes, that's going to happen? Or if you get a promise tonight, if you read something in God's Word or somebody describes something to you and think, yes, God has said that's going to happen, but it's going to be 2077 before it actually comes to fruition. How are you going to hold on to that? And yet, if you turn again to the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, on page 1144, Paul says, "I always thank God for you. He's writing to the church in Corinth because of His grace, given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you." Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. You know, perhaps just for you as for the Jews, the new beginning of something may seem less impressive than what happened before. As you take your next step in your walk with God, it may seem less grand than you had imagined. It may seem less than you had expected. But nevertheless, we should remember that God is faithful. And as we look to the weeping and the sounds of joys, they should remind us that even in the most dire of circumstances... And these folks were in the most dire of circumstances for 70 years. God is faithful. And with God, years don't matter. So we leave Ezra 3, we leave Ezra for tonight, on an upbeat note. God has restored his people to their inheritance, and they have recommenced the temple. Worship has been recommenced according to the precedent of the first temple, and according to, to the uh, commandments of the written word. They've given themselves over to sacrifice and they've given themselves over to worship, proving God's faithfulness despite the fear of the peoples around about them. What about us? How is our sacrificing of ourselves? Is it all of us? You know, in a sense it can't be otherwise. Or else it wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice. You know, there is a new phrase which you'll forgive me for repeating, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Sacrifice demands complete obedience. Are we willing to commit ourselves to God despite what happens around us, despite all the things that cause us to fear? As a church and as individuals, can we keep our priorities right, even in the midst of a time of very significant change for us? Can we keep worship first and God at the center? And can we remember that with God, years, however many years they are, whether they're 70 or a lot more, don't dilute his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're faithful to us and to your word. And we praise you for that. We thank you that as we learn about you from the Old Testament, Lord, we thank you that you're the same God today as then. We thank you for the uh, additional revelation through Jesus Christ that we have and we praise you for that and how that indeed removes the need for animal sacrifices. But Lord, you call us to sacrifice ourselves as spiritual sacrifices to you. Help us to be devoted to you. Help us to be devoted to you despite whatever happens around us. And give us the strength this day and in this incoming week to follow you and trust you as you would want us to. And we ask it in and through the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.